There's antimony, arsenic, aluminum, selenium, and hydrogen, and oxygen, and nitrogen, and rhenium, and nickel, neodymium, neptunium, germanium, and iron, americium, ruthenium, uranium, europium, zirconium, lutetium, vanadium, and lanthanum, and osmium, and astatine, and radium, and gold, protactinium, and indium, and gallium, and iodine, and thorium, and thulium, and thallium. There's yttrium, ytterbium, actinium, rubidium. Well, welcome aboard for another edition of the... uh... Dr. Joshua, and for those of you who don't know, I direct McGill's Office for Science and Society, where we try to separate sense from nonsense for you and try to keep you up to date on what is happening in the world of science. As usual, I start out with questions for you. DuPont, one of the largest chemical companies in the world, no longer manufactures the product that it was founded on. What was that product? Uh, I'll give you a second question as well. As we know, or at least learned in elementary or maybe in high school, the Earth's core is very, very, very hot. How come? What are the two major sources of heat for the Earth's core? So there are the two questions for you. Give us a call at 514-790-0800, or you can also text us at 514 514- 800. Now, as we get going here, I want to uh, shed some light on a situation for you early. As the story goes, back in the 17th century, Amsterdam, in Amsterdam, ladies of the night carried lanterns to signal sailors that they were available. And supposedly the red color of these effect it camouflaged the skin imperfections that these women often had. In light of subsequent research, uh, maybe these lanterns did more than just hide scars, and maybe they actually helped heal the skin disorders. Okay, so let's talk a bit of history first before I tell you the up-to-date version of that story. We can go back to some 3,000 years ago when Queen Nefertiti of Egypt was wall graving, uh, shown with her children soaking up the rays of the sun. Obviously, they had some idea of the benefits of exposure to sunlight. The Greeks and Romans built solariums, and in preparation for the Olympic Games, the ancient Olympic Games, that is, the Greek athletes were encouraged to expose themselves to sunlight for several months to enhance their strength. However, it was not until the late 19th century that the spotlight of science focused on the effects of light. Dr. Nils Ryberg Finsen, born in the Faroe Islands and educated in Denmark, suffered from something called Niemann-Pick disease, in which harmful amounts of fat accumulate in internal organs and uh, dark areas of pigmentation occur on the skin. His belief that sunlight might be helpful set the stage for a career in research into the possible healing abilities of light. Seeing that sunlight had no effect on him, he began to explore the use of artificial light. And Finson began a collaboration with the Copenhagen Electric Light works to produce an electrical carbon arc lamp. And then in 1895 came a lucky accident. One of the engineers, Niels Mogensen, 
with whom Dr. Finson was working suffered from lupus vulgaris, a skin infection caused by the tuberculosis bacterium, and it causes terrible disfiguring lesions. No treatment the man had tried, but while working on the carbon arc lamp, he noticed that the lesions improved. Mogensen then became Dr. Finson's first patient, and after only a few days of treatment with what came to be known as the Finson light, his condition improved dramatically. The doctor then went on to try his lamp on smallpox scars with highly satisfactory results. While his lamp produced full-spectrum light, he proposed that it was the red end of the spectrum that had the healing effect. Theory about the healing effects of red light to the chief physician at a Copenhagen hospital, it was rejected out of hand. Finson retorted, you might at least try not to laugh at me. Well, the laughter stopped when doctors in Norway sequestered newly diagnosed smallpox patients, that is, flooded with red light, who recovered without ever developing scars. There was now enough evidence to convince the mayor of Copenhagen and some donors to establish the medical light with Finson as its director. The results of treatment with Finson light were impressive. Of patients afflicted with lupus vulgaris, 83% were cured. Within a few years, 40 Vincent Institutes were established in Europe and in the U.S. as well. And treatment of lupus vulgaris with Finson lamps continued until the introduction of antibiotics half a century later. In 1903, Dr. being awarded the Nobel Prize in Medicine. Unfortunately, by this time, he was confined to a wheelchair and was unable to travel to receive the prize in person. But by this time, he had launched a field that has come to be known as phototherapy, that is, the use of light to heal. Well, now we're going to skip ahead a little bit, more than a little bit, to 1967, when Hungarian physician Endre Mester repeated an experiment by American doctor Paul McGuff, who had used a red laser beam to destroy a cancerous tumor that had been implanted into a laboratory rat. Well, Mester didn't know it at the time, but the laser that he was using was much, much weaker than what McGuff had used, and it had no effect on the tumor that had been implanted into the rat. But he noticed a rapid healing of the wound where the tumor had been implanted. Furthermore, it had hair to grow at that site. Quite remarkable. And Mester coined the term biostimulation or photobiostimulation for his low-level red light therapy. Since that time, numerous researchers have explored the potential of red light in the treatment of various conditions. And that includes some NASA scientists who found that red light boosts plant growth and it allows skin lesions to heal fast. It was a very important discovery because astronauts in capsules and aboard the space station sometimes do get injuries and, and skin problems, and now they can be healed faster with red light. 
Other studies showed possible benefits in pain relief, acne treatment, blood circulation, asthma, uh, COPD, that is chronic uh, obstructive pulmonary disease, and even, believe it or not, hair growth. Light-emitting diodes implanted in special helmets directly to the forehead have shown some tantalizing benefits in depression, Parkinson's disease, maybe even Alzheimer's, and also in cognitive enhancement. Now, finally, the effect of light on COVID has been studied. And it turns out that at the violet-blue end of the spectrum, uh, light can inactivate some bacteria and some viruses. And at least in experimental animals, red and near infrared reduce respiratory disorders similar to complications associated with coronavirus infection. And today, there are studies going on uh, about exposing COVID patients to red light to see what effect it has. And you know what? At first, this was kind of uh, passed off as, as, uh, as nonsense, especially by people who were not familiar with the history of red light uh, in, in therapy, the story that I told you about uh, Dr. Finson. Well, today, many of these researchers uh, you know, who said that there was absolutely nothing to this are red-faced because modern research is showing that uh, red light therapy actually has some potential benefits. Now, uh, as is very often the case, of course, the charlatans also get into, into the picture and uh, they have overhyped this and, and suggest that uh, red light is a cure for uh, any disease that ails anybody. That is, is not the case. And, uh, you know, as we often have to say in science, more studies are needed. Uh, I think it is uh, certainly tantalizing learning uh, something about it. And who knows, maybe these uh, helmets that have the LEDs implanted in them, which in preliminary experiments have shown hair growth, maybe they will pan out. I've had some answers to uh, some of my questions uh, texted in, and uh, one of them uh, is, is correct. We, uh, I asked a question about uh, uh, the Earth's core uh, being very hot, and the question was, due to what? What causes that, that temperature? And uh, there really are, are two reasons uh, for that. Uh, one is uh, the heat that was left over from when all of the small particles and gases condensed to form the earth. So the original earth was extremely hot. Uh, and that, of course, uh, essentially can be traced back to the, the Big Bang. So that heat is still retained in the core. But that only explains a very small part of the uh, tremendous amount of heat there. Most of it is due to radioactive uh, activity because there are various kinds of, of radioactive nuclei that are present in the core of the Earth. And as those uh, uh, 
react, that is, they change into other elements, a tremendous amount of heat is, is released. So we have the radioactive decay of potassium-40, uranium-238, uranium-235, thorium-232, and uh, that releases a, a great deal of, of heat. We also have the, the shifting of the, uh, some of the uh, plate tectonics way, way down there in the bowels of the earth causing friction that also uh, contributes. And the heat down there is, is really, really, uh, you know, it's more than we can uh, imagine. It's, it's uh, estimated to be between 9 and 13,000 uh, uh, degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, so it is hot down there, and now you know uh, why. The other question that uh, I, was at, uh, I was asking was about DuPont. And I said it's one of the largest chemical companies in the world, and they no longer manufactured the product that the company was founded on. And I wanted to know what it was. And I did have a correct answer uh, texted in. Uh, Gunpowder is what we're talking about here. Uh, Eleutheran Mills was established in 1802 by Eleuther Irene Dupont on the banks of the Brandywine River, just outside of Willington, Delaware. As a young man, Dupont had learned the art of manufacturing gunpowder, Guess from who? From Antoine Lavoisier, the noted French chemist who headed France's National Powder and Saltpeter Administration. After the French Revolution made life uncomfortable for Pierre-Samuel Dupont, Eleuther's father, the Dupont clan migrated to America. One day, E.I., as the younger Dupont came to be known, was out hunting with his friend, Louis de Toussard, when he realized that American gunpowder was inferior to the version he had learned to produce in France. He sought out a suitable piece of land and with help from his father, established a Lutheran mills where saltpeter from India was combined with American sulfur and charcoal to produce high quality gunpowder. EI introduced a number of novel techniques including manufacturing the powder in a series of smaller buildings, which had three strong walls and one weak one facing the river. Case of an explosion, the weak wall would be blown out and the destructive force directed out over the river. And explosions there were. Unfortunate workers caught in one were sometimes themselves propelled over the river as human cannonballs. This gave rise to the euphemism going across the creek for dying in an explosion. A terrible explosion in 1818 sent 40 workers over the creek and injured E.I.'s wife. It was attributed to a foreman's drinking and led to DuPont banning alcohol consumption on the premises. It also prompted him to introduce a pension plan for widows. He also established schools for employees' children, and various employment benefits for workers. By the time EI died of a heart attack at age 63, the company's name had been changed from Lutheran Mills to DuPont, and it was a thriving enterprise. But EI could not possibly have imagined that the small explosives company founded in Delaware would make his name famous with the slogan, Better Things for Better Living Through Chemistry. Indeed, the company had introduced a slew of chemicals that made for better living, but still dropped the through chemistry in 1982 
because of an increasing public association of chemicals with toxins. Today, DuPont's slogan is the miracles of science, and it is indeed producing miracles in fields ranging from crop seeds to bulletproof materials. Some of the most famous materials used in consumer items have emerged from DuPont research. Nylon, Teflon, Kevlar, neoprene, and mylar were all discovered by DuPont scientists. DuPont remains an outstanding chemical company, even though it is shy about using the word chemistry in its promotional material. And these days, they are getting even a bit more shy because I'm sure you have heard all of the controversies about the uh, polyfluorinated uh, alkyl substances, the PFASs. And uh, these are materials that uh, are used in all kinds of applications in our daily life. They resist both moisture, they resist, resist grease, so wrapping paper, uh, for example, the, the uh, fast food containers, you don't want them soaking through with grease. Or the microwave popcorn, you don't want that soaking through with grease either. So these are all treated with PFAS. Uh, these substances are also found in, in many cosmetics because they make them impervious to, to water. They are found in firefighting foams. They are found in, in apparel. Uh, for example, you know, the, the, a lot of the apparel that is based on Gore-Tex uh, is made with these perfluoroalkyl substances. So what's the issue here? That these are referred to as forever chemicals because they do not easily break down in the environment and they can last for a very, very long time. Now, of course, that in itself is not catastrophic. What is really concerning here is not only do they last a very long time, but they have some toxic uh, effects. And some of these perfluoroalkyl substances are endocrine disruptors, and they have linked, been linked with, with a number of other uh, conditions. Uh, of course, the uh, company is working feverishly to uh, try to solve this, this problem. And... Uh, the solution may be in the very specific types of PFAS that are used. A PFAS is, is an umbrella term for substances that have a certain similarity in molecular structure and have a lot of fluorine at have, uh, atoms attached to them. But not all PFASs behave in the same way. Uh, and uh, the same way that... Uh, you know, we've talked before about phthalates, substances that are added to plastics to make them soft and pliable. There are some phthalates which are a big problem. There are other phthalates which uh, uh, don't have any toxicity associated with them at all. Similarly with the perfluoroalkyl substances. Uh, what uh, has to be done now is that uh, a distinction has to be made between the ones that have been shown to have some sort of environmental persistence and, and toxicity and the ones that can be safely used. It's not a question of just, you know, having a, a blanket uh, removal of all of these from, from our life because they are such useful substances in so many uh, connections. So, uh, the DuPont company, of course, is working on on, on that. And uh, now you have a bit of a history of, uh, you know, the uh, evolution of this company from a <clears throat> manufacturer of gunpowder to the current producers of nylon and Kevlar and neoprene and mylar. 
and uh, also of the perfluoroalkyl substances with their uh, questionable history. Do you look upon the universe with wonder in your eyes? Do you tingle with attention when you're taken by surprise? If a problem should perplex you, does it put your brain in gear? Then you're ready for adventure on the science frontier. Two more questions for you guys. Who said in his Nobel Prize acceptance speech, I have observed many transformations while working with radioactive materials, but none as rapid as my own from physicist to chemist. Next question. What does the unit TOR, T-O-R-R, measure, and where does the name come from? So there are the two questions for you to uh, puzzle over. Give us a call at 514-790-0800. You can also text your comments and messages to 514-800. And a question about Legionnaire's disease. Uh, Legionnaire's disease is so-called because it first emerged in Philadelphia when at a convention of uh, Legionnaires, uh, many people got sick. And this was traced to a bacterial contamination of the air conditioning system in, in the hotel. And uh, it's a terrible affliction because uh, it leads to a very severe type of, uh, of pneumonia, which can be uh, lethal. Uh, there have been occasional outbreaks uh, uh, in many places. It's even possible to have this happen at home, although it's very, very unlikely. Uh, it usually happens when bacteria multiply in large water systems where the water can sit stagnant for a while, such as in hotel air conditioning systems. Home air conditioners don't use water. And uh, of course, if you're getting your water from a hot water tank, uh, that is hot enough to kill the bacteria. So you, you generally need some kind of system where water sits uh, at a relatively, uh, you know, uh, a temperature generally higher than just room temperature, but not hot enough to kill the bacteria. It sits there for a while, allowing the bacteria to, to, to multiply. So it is uh, very unlikely to happen at, at home. But there's really not much that, you know, you can do at, uh, at home uh, to prevent it. Uh, I think, you know, in a, in a private residence or even apartment building, the risk is very, very small. Uh, but uh, there still are sometimes outbreaks. But... As I said, it usually is in places where you have very elaborate uh, uh, systems where water can, uh, especially air conditioning systems, where water can sit for uh, a long time. Uh, nicotine. Let's talk about that for a moment because it's a very interesting uh, material. Uh, obviously, it's a nasty chemical. I mean, everyone uh, knows that. You know, but contrary to popular belief, it is not carcinogenic. It's all the other stuff in burning tobacco leaves. That is the polyaromatic hydrocarbons and the heterocyclic aromatic amines. Those are the ones that cause cancer. But nicotine is the addictive chemical in tobacco. So in a sense, it is responsible for cancer. Don't get the impression, though, that nicotine is not dangerous. It is one of the most potent poisons the average person is likely to come into contact uh, with. It's an interesting chemical, to be sure. It comes from the Nicotiana tobacco plant, which derives its name from Jean Nicot, 
who was a French ambassador to Portugal in the 16th century. In 1550, he sent some seeds from the plant back to Paris, and the French botanist thought it appropriate to commemorate the occasion by coining a new name in honor of the ambassador. Nicotine is a deadly poison. A fatal dose is about 60 milligrams. That's a tiny amount. Believe it or not, that is the amount. And get this, just two cigarettes. So how come smokers do not die from nicotine toxicity? Because most of the nicotine in a cigarette is not absorbed through the lungs. Only a couple of milligrams are absorbed from each cigarette. But that's enough to boost the release of dopamine from nerve cells, and it is that dopamine responsible for the reduction of anxiety and the mood alteration that smokers experience and uh, look for. The toxic effects of nicotine have long been known, and at one time it was commonly used as an insecticide. Well, you know what? It can be used as a people's side as well. And this idea has occurred to criminals. The problem is that you have to get enough nicotine into the bloodstream, something that is hard to do by ingestion. One enterprising woman in England did manage to figure out a way to do it. In 1940, she mixed nicotine into her husband's aftershave and blunted his razor. Pretty clever. Sure enough, he cut himself shaving, and when he applied the aftershave, he absorbed enough nicotine to kill him. Mystery writers have also seized the opportunity to use nicotine. In Behold, Here's Poison, Georgette Heyer describes a murder carried out by extracting nicotine from tobacco and injecting it into a tube of toothpaste by means of a syringe. Absorption takes place quite readily through the thin tissues of the mouth. A story that, let us say, leaves a bad taste in your mouth. But it makes for a good read. All right, I think we have Michael on the line. Yeah, good afternoon, Dr. Joe. Hi. I have a question about uh, Legionnaire's disease. Uh, usually when I go away on vacation, I turn my hot water tank off. Uh, would that cause uh, bacteria to form over two weeks or so? Very, very unlikely, because it's very unlikely that you'd have Legionnaire's bacteria in there in the first place. So I would I would say that a very, very low-level risk. I wouldn't think about it. Okay. I was just concerned because it was a Hydro-Quebec person that told me. That that you can get Legionnaire's bacteria in there? Well, I mean, I suppose you can. And, I mean, in theory, it's possible. But, uh, I mean, I've never heard of that happening in a home. Okay, so I'll continue doing so because I'm always worried that my tank will uh, split while I'm away. So I turn my water and the hot water tank right. off when I go on vacation. Okay, Thank, thanks, thanks for very that. much. <clears throat> okay. Uh, <clears throat> I did have a, a correct answer to my question about TOR. And uh, indeed, uh, the unit TOR... Uh, is named after Evangelista Torricelli, who was a pupil of Galileo. And what does it measure? It, of course, measures pressure. And uh, it was back in 1643 that uh, Torricelli carried out experiments with the mercury column, a classic way to determine uh, pressure. And uh, he is, uh, of course, also regarded as the inventor of the barometer. 
and uh, he was the first person ever to produce a permanent vacuum. How? Well, he took a, a glass tube, sealed at one end, filled it with mercury, inverted it, holding his finger over the, the open end, put it into a pool of mercury and took away his finger and the mercury in the glass tube then of course fell until it was balanced by the atmospheric pressure pushing down on the pool of mercury at the bottom. But the space that had been left when the mercury fell was of course a vacuum, nothing in there. So interesting enough, uh, Evangelista Torricelli, uh, after whom we have the unit Tor, uh, was the inventor, or at least the first producer of a permanent vacuum. I think we have Angelo on the line. Yes, good afternoon, Joe. Uh, about vitamin D, because in the uh, winter we need it uh, more. Can we get it through uh, the patio door? The, if the sun shines on the skin, do we, do we no, get vitamin D? No, no. The glass absorb most of the uh, of the UV light that is needed to produce vitamin D. So you need to be uh, outside, but you don't need to be outside for very long. Uh, 15 minutes of exposure to to sunlight will yeah. give you uh, enough. And of course, you also don't have to do it every day because uh, vitamin D is stored in the body. It's a fat-soluble vitamin. Uh, however, it's not a bad idea in the winter to take some vitamin supplements, uh, you know, the, the B vitamins. Uh, it certainly cannot do any harm and it uh, could conceivably do some good. Uh, you don't want to overdo that because, again, you know, just because a little bit is good doesn't mean more is better. Uh, so anywhere from a thousand to two thousand international units of vitamin D three is the way to go. We are born to do science. A baby can do it, and so can you. We are born to do science. Just figuring out what's true. You know, last. Last Thursday, February 13, uh, was uh, National Rubber Ducky Day. And much to my chagrin, I forgot about it. And uh, I had to celebrate it on, on Friday. And uh, I did so by producing a video, which you can look at. In fact, you can look at all my videos. You go to youtube.com slash McGillOSS. And I, I do several videos a week. There's a whole compilation of them there, including the uh, shows that we do through my office called The Dose of Science. So check that out, youtube.com slash McGillOSS. And of course, I always like to remind you to go to our website, which is mcgill.ca slash OSS, where you can sign up for our free weekly newsletter and read all kinds of interesting things. Uh, you may not know exactly why it is that I'm so uh, taken with uh, the so-called rubber ducks, which actually are not rubber ducks these days. They're polyvinyl chloride ducks. And uh, I first uh, started collecting these, oh, I, I guess it, it goes back about 20 years, when I was doing a, a, a TV presentation on quackery. And I thought, you know, it would be interesting to kind of have a... a duck sitting on the table while I was talking about that. 
And uh, then I got asked the question of why I had the duck there. And I said, well, look, I mean, ducks quack, and we're talking about quacks here. And that started me on this journey of uh, collecting ducks of all kinds. And uh, I have a good number now. I have over 350 uh, of these guys. Most of them are made of PVC, polyvinyl chloride. Uh, the original rubber ducks uh, date back to the late 1800s uh, when uh, Charles Goodyear found a way to make uh, rubber very stretchy by combining it and heating it with, with sulfur. But then when the uh, Second World War came around, all the rubber was dedicated to the war effort. And uh, the plastic industry got into the game and started to produce plastic duckies made of PVC polyvinyl uh, chloride. Uh, there was some controversy about that that emerged later because in order to make those PVC duckies flexible, you add some phthalates, and these are the plasticizing agents, but uh, they can have some toxicity. But of course, we don't generally make a diet of rubber or PVC duckies. So anyway, that's how I got into it, and uh, so I have my shelves lined with these guys uh, now. And I have some, uh, you know, some unique ones. Uh, I have one that I really like, which is a hand-carved one that was made for me. So I know that uh, there are no others uh, like it. I have a few others that are, are uh, you know, somewhat hard to get. Uh, these days, though, collecting has been made so easy with the Internet because you can just buy anything. And that also has taken out some of the fun of it because a lot of the fun of collecting comes from, you know, hunting around, going to antique fairs when we were still able to do those things. And then you find one that, you know, you think is is really neat. So anyway, that's why I, I do collect these guys. And you can go to our YouTube site. Again, it's youtube.com slash McGillOSS. And you can see my uh, video and, of course, all the other videos as well. And if you want to get my uh, weekly videos, I, I do about two or three a week, you can send me an email, joe.schwartz at mcgill.ca, and I'll put you on the mailing list for uh, for that. But you can also see them on our weekly uh, new newsletter. All right. Uh, I think we have Ariel on the line. Hi. Hi. How are Hi. you? Okay. Hi. I have, a, I have a question to ask you on going of the uh, – when you were talking about nicotine – yeah. Um, basically, do you have any idea what GABA is? It's a form of nicotine. It's basically, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, sorry, it's basically known. It's, it's it's from Jamaica, but basically, it is. Uh, it's basically pure tobacco leaf. It's like the whole. It's like before the chemical process of having uh, a cigarette made. So well, how do you spell it? Uh, GABA. G R. Yeah. A B. Graba. Uh, let me see what Wikipedia says about it. Uh, uh, not much. Uh, not much knowledge on it, or one second. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm just putting uh, Graba into Google, one, and one it doesn't. Maybe, maybe you're, you're mistyping it. Give me one second. I'll. Uh... Okay, no, I found it. I found it. Okay. A, a Jamaican term used to describe something mixed with marijuana when smoked. Yeah, exactly. So it's mostly it's mostly marijuana. No, it's not uh, it's, it's not marijuana. It's a tobacco leaf. Well, that's not what it says here. No, it's, and you're not it's, yeah? 
It's, it's uh, what I have in front of me. Basically, it says if you enjoy an all natural smoke, hand roll the way that you would no doubt heard about gravel leaf. It's a sim- it's simply a whole leaf of tobacco. Anyways, just okay. to cut to the okay. question, uh, I don't want to I don't want to yeah, confuse okay. you or anything. I'm very yeah. sorry. Yeah, uh, basically, ahead. my question is this: because you said that 60 milligrams is a fatal dose, correct? Yeah, absorbed okay. into the bloodstream. Okay, so what if what if I was smoking? If I was smoking, uh, let's say, graba mixed up or whatever, just in the bong, does that does that mean I'm basically, um, I'm basically, it, is it basically going to my bloodstream? And could that? No, it isn't. It, no, it, it isn't. It isn't. Nicotine is very difficult to absorb into into the bloodstream in toxic amounts. So the you don't need very much nicotine to be absorbed in order to get the thrilling effect of nicotine. What you need comparatively much more to be absorbed into the bloodstream to be toxic. So that's, that's why you, you don't get poisoned by eating tobacco. So I don't think that you have to worry about that. Chewing tobacco is a bit uh, more risky because you would get more of the nicotine absorbed, but I don't know of anyone who's uh, had a toxic effect from uh, chewing uh, tobacco. But why, why are you chewing the grabber? No, I'm not chewing the grabber. No, I was, I was, I was uh, just concerned that if, let's say, I were to smoke it, if I, let's say, because usually people don't really put that in a bong, they'll roll a joint out of it. My yeah. question was, am I, am I increasing a chance of a fatal risk of dying, which I would not want? That's no. why when I, when I heard you none, talk about... None of us want that, right? <laughs> Nobody wants to increase the risk of dying. No, I, I, I don't think you have to, to worry about that. I mean, the real worry about tobacco is smoking it over the long term and triggering uh, lung cancer. The, you, you have to be quite inventive in order to get enough nicotine into the bloodstream in order to kill someone. But as I, I, I said before, you know, when I was talking about this, there are some people who are inventive enough and who have found ways to poison people with nicotine. But the scenario that you talk about, I, I don't think I would, I'd worry. Okay? All right. Uh, I did get a, a message from uh, one of our regular listeners, James Bond, not that James Bond, uh, but uh, uh, he says that uh, where there would be an issue with Legionella in the home is in the uh, a first uh, um, a furnace humidifier. And yeah, I've, I've uh, looked into that because I had been asked about that before. And while that is, I think, theoretically possible because you might have the right temperature there, and if somehow Legionella bacteria do get in there, they, they could conceivably multiply. But whenever I checked, I, I, I couldn't find any examples where that has actually happened. So, uh, you know, that's a theoretical possibility, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I don't know many practical evidence uh, for it. Uh, I mean, I, I think in the uh, grand scheme of things, uh, our worry about Legionella comes kind of, you know, down the line. We have other worries these days, let's just say that, including this uh, COVID, which just does not seem to let up. Uh, we didn't talk about it at all today because there isn't all that much new to uh, talk about. And uh, our numbers in Quebec are still not good. Uh, but if we are going to follow along um, uh, the history of South Africa, we should soon be seeing a decline in uh, in cases. But in the meantime, uh, it is still uh, haunting our life. 
and uh, uh, unfortunately we have here in Quebec uh, still a very large number of cases and uh, uh, deaths as well. So life goes on but not for everyone. Anyway, uh, the life of this show has gone on now. Uh, we've once again run out of time. We've spent the whole hour, hopefully made it interesting for you. We'll be back with you same time, same station next week. Until then, I'm Joe Schwartz, hoping all the chemistry in your life comes out just right. <laughs>